Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Before we start today, I must say a big thank you to all my supporters on Patreon but especially the new supporters who are joined this special group this week. That's Sam May, Sukhvinder Singh and Eve Russell de Clifford. Thank you all so much. A new bonus episode, number 16, will be released this week and as supporters will know, there is also other exclusive content there. This week's story is a really far-reaching, interesting case of jealousy touching as far as the royal family. But before we begin... The main event in today's podcast took place on September the 17th, the year 2000. So let's set some quick context by looking at what was topping the music charts at this time. In the UK, it was a pretty dire time musically, I say. Number one was Lady Hear Me Tonight by Mod Joe, followed by Kylie with On A Night Like This and Natural by S Club 7. This sort of chart is almost enough to turn you towards Radio 3. Almost. The US was a touch better, I guess, with Santana featuring Rob Thomas with Smooth at number one. I should add that Rob is no relation to the comical villain Thomas Thomas from last week's show. At number two was Christina Aguilera with What a Girl Wants. Some decent music, I guess, could be the answer. In the news at this time, the greatest Olympics in my memory opened in Sydney, Australia, with highlights including Steve Redgrave winning his fifth rowing gold. Sammy Sosa became the second player to hit 50 or more home runs in three consecutive years. And the UK saw real protests, not the usual UK way of showing anger, such as just saying regards rather than kind regards, but real anger. Protesters blocked the entrances to oil refineries to protest against the ridiculously high fuel prices. Panic buying by motorists led to nationwide petrol shortages, with between 75-90% to of all UK petrol stations closing due to low supplies in the following week. There we go, you see we can do it if we try. Jane Andrews was born in Cleethorpes, Lincolnshire, the youngest of three children. She lived a perfectly normal life in the East Coast town with her dad, a joiner, and her mum, a social worker. As a child, Jane was promising and intelligent, excelling in grammar school, but the family had got themselves in significant debt and had to move to a small townhouse in the nearby town of Grimsby. This affected Jane, who told herself that she would do all she could to ensure that the crippling handicap of financial hardship would never again affect her as a grown woman. Jane struggled as a teenager. She had poor mental health, suffering at various times from depression, panic attacks and an eating disorder. At the age of 15, she attempted suicide by overdose after her mum discovered that she was skipping school. But luckily, she was found in time and she survived. Then at just 17, 
Jane became pregnant and had an abortion. Jane looked at what career choice could help her make the money and give her the lifestyle that she coveted. She enrolled in a fashion course at the Grimsby College of Art and afterwards took a job designing children's clothes at Marks and Spencers. Even at college, it was clear to everyone that Jane wanted a more glamorous lifestyle than could be found in Grimsby. (laughs) I can't say anything. Please don't comment, Adam. One lecturer said of her that Jane's primary motivation was to get out of Grimsby. And at age 21, she answered an anonymous ad in The Lady magazine for a personal dresser. Six months later, she found herself being interviewed with Sarah, Duchess of York, not knowing that this was the advert to which she'd replied, and she began working for her at Buckingham Palace just four days later. Talking of the royal family, I've heard many different views about the royal wedding, but I have no strong feelings either way except for hoping that Meghan and Harry are happy. Do you? Harry was undoubtedly under pressure to marry, as it's the dumb thing for a young prince. And for some people, possibly less so in current times, and I'd suggest especially the brides, there is this dream of a big special wedding and it's so important to them. I had a small wedding on the beach at St Lucia in the Caribbean, as I couldn't imagine anything worse than a big occasion. But it's vital for some to be able to waste a huge amount of money on one day surrounded by their parents, friends and family members they either don't know or don't like. And Jane Andrews was one of these people. She was desperate to marry and have her big day as the star of the show. Maybe this was because of the social circles that she moved in, especially her time as personal dresser to Sarah Ferguson. Just in case you don't know who she was, the Duchess Sarah Ferguson, She's the ex-wife of that most hard-working and valuable member of the royal family, Prince Andrew. Ah, what a pair they made. Although they're less said about Fergie, as she's widely known, the better. I guess that when Prince Philip and the Queen dreamt of their perfect daughter-in-law, with the benefit of hindsight, she didn't turn out to be quite the one they had in mind. Look, it's too easy to poke fun at the free-loading and deeply unpleasant Andrew, and the incidents involving Fergie, such as having her toes sucked by her lover being splashed across the tabloids while still married. Let's hope that Meghan is much, much more successful. But let's face it, it's not going to be too tricky, is it? But I digress. Working for Fergie, Jane Andrews saw real wealth and privilege, which must have really affected her. And an early casualty of this employment was her Grimsby accent, which didn't last long. This transformation even led to the Duchess calling her Lady Jane. Although the pair were very close friends as well as work colleagues, Jane's employment ended badly. She left in a hurry, and royal aides later believed that she fleeced the Duchess of over £10,000 in the nine years she spent travelling with her. This was particularly upsetting for Fergie, as the pair had enjoyed an extremely close bond. Although technically Sarah's dresser, Jane's main task was to shop for the Duchess, which for Jane Andrews was just the most wonderful job. Two years into her royal assignment, Jane was introduced through friends to a man called Christopher Dunn Butler, a senior manager at IBM, who was divorced and 20 years her senior. They married in 1990 in her native Grimsby, a small town on the east coast of England, where if you don't enjoy the smell of fish, you're in some serious trouble. 
But the union only lasted six years, as Jane's love life proved to be as colourful as her career. She is said to have conducted a number of affairs, one of them the bodyguard attached to the royal family. Jane cited pressures of work for the couple's split, although her ex-husband revealed that multiple counts of infidelity on Jane's part was a large factor. Jane admitted to being unfaithful, saying, I had a couple of flings, I'm not proud of it. And another cause of the split was that her husband had now lost his high-paying job, and the new lifestyle Jane had to adjust to didn't fit the style of living she was now seeking. Following her divorce, Andrews met Dimitri Horn, the son of a Greek shipping magnate. However, after a bitter breakup, Jane trashed the flat they shared. She stalked him around Knightsbridge, unable to accept it was over. She hounded him with threatening phone calls and allegedly assaulted him. She was also supposed to wreck his car and fraudulently cashed a cheque for £8,000. This incident brought Jane into a deep depression. She overdosed again, but luckily once more she survived without seeking medical treatment. During this time, it is alleged that the Duchess was having an affair with a man who supposedly also had feelings for Jane. Shortly after this alleged fling, Jane was dismissed from her job as the Duchess's royal dresser. Although it's still believed by some that this issue led directly to her termination, Buckingham Palace officials state there was no truth in this, and that her departure was part of a cost-cutting exercise when Prince Andrew and Fergie split, so the Duchess had to reduce costs. In fact, you have to admire Fergie's patience with Jane. On one occasion, Jane had packed her jewels worth over a quarter of a million pounds into an aircraft hold when they should never have left her side. The haul was taken by a light-fingered baggage handler, but Jane kept her job on that occasion. She was good at her job, and Fergie was very, very loyal to her. So, as I said before, when she left, it was believed she took over £10,000 in the time she spent with Fergie, which really helped explain her lavish lifestyle on a very modest salary. Maybe for someone determined not to suffer the crippling nightmare of the debt experienced by her family growing up, the temptation was just too much, and she still coveted that rich West London lifestyle enjoyed by so many in Fergie's friendship group. Although in public Jane always spoke of how proud she was of her Grimsby roots, She certainly had no intention of going back there. So what she needed to do was to meet a rich man who could provide this lifestyle. And in 1998 she did. She met a very handsome, suave and charismatic businessman called Tommy Cressman. Jane was instantly hooked and to her he was very much the one and she wanted his ring on her finger. The pair moved in together in May 1999 and lived in Fulham, south-west London. Both were intelligent people with a real get-ahead approach to life. By now, Jane was working for upmarket London jewellers, Theo Fennell, and Tommy ran a number of companies, including one with former racing driving legends, the Sterling Moss, which supplied high-quality car accessories. Tommy was single and had never married. To his friends, he was a man who enjoyed his bachelorhood, cars, gadgets and things of that kind. That was his life. It is fair to say he was very fond of women, and many were extremely attracted to him. He was that sort of guy. He was also very well connected in the highest possible levels of London society, 
and this made him even more attractive and important to Jane and she made it very clear that her future success was tied in with being his bride and the two having children together. Jane confided to some friends that she'd been abused as a child and it was the trauma of this event which meant she wanted and in fact needed a long-term stable relationship. One of her friends would later remark that after hearing Jane talk about Tommy, he was Jane Andrews' life as opposed to the other way around. But Jane's hope of living the fairy tale with Tommy were dashed when she discovered some emails to other women when he was away on a stag weekend. I was always told never to eavesdrop to conversations as you are not likely to enjoy what you hear. The same is true with emails and texts and Jane was devastated beyond belief when she saw what Tommy had been writing. She wanted to stop reading but once she'd started she just couldn't drag herself away from the screen. The messages were sexually charged and written to young women in the US he'd been speaking with on dating sites. So in reality probably a male pensioner in Birmingham, but Jane wasn't to know this. One described Jane as like a pair of old slippers he couldn't get rid of. Wow, imagine hearing that about you. One sent by a woman called Deborah in Las Vegas in February the year before was signed Big Kisses and Licks in All the Right Places. Another sent from Tommy was addressed to Dear Tall and Beautiful, You Didn't Give Your Name in the Advert. While another began, Dear Pamela, you're gorgeous. You get the idea? Pretty hard material for Jane to stomach. And at around the same time she found the emails, Jane had been pushing Tommy on marriage. She told one friend that she'd set a six-month ultimatum for him to propose. Another said that this kind of behaviour coincided with Jane appearing to show an anxiety about Tommy's previous girlfriends. Another friend spoke of growing tensions in the relationship as she became so frightened of losing him, she became very possessive. Then in September, the couple headed to the south of France for a few days holiday to visit Tommy's mum, Barbara, who lived in that lovely part of the world. But the trip didn't go well at all. In fact, it was a disaster. There were heated arguments with the majority related to Tommy's reluctance to commit to marriage. And the more Jane pressed the subject, the less keen Tommy became. He wasn't a man being used to tell what to do, and to his mind, he saw Jane become increasingly possessive and pressurising him. Coming home, they drove to Nice Airport, and during this difficult trip where conversation was strained, to say the very least, Jane made several mobile phone calls to friends in England, moaning about the marriage situation and complaining that Tommy was still not showing any signs of committing to her. She even spent 19 minutes on a call from France to her ex-husband Christopher Dunn, telling him that there'd been a bust-up. It was during this trip to the airport that Tommy told him it was over. He could no longer cope with her obsessive behaviour. Reacting to this news, Jane became so hysterical waiting for the flight that Tommy actually slapped her. He told his mum that he was terrified that Jane would try to kill herself again and he had tried to let her down gently, but she'd still taken the news very, very badly. The following day, Saturday, September the 16th, the relationship worsened still further. Tommy Cressman dialed 999. He told the police operator, we are rowing and someone's going to get hurt unless 
I would like the police to come and split us up. I would like somebody here to stop us hurting each other. If we don't have somebody here soon, somebody's going to get hurt. But the operator intervened and Tommy relented, deciding it wasn't after all a matter for the police. It was about the same time that Jane rang a psychotherapist and a hypnotherapist to arrange appointments for the couple to discuss their relationship. She also told friends that Tommy had had affairs with other women and she felt betrayed, ironic, as she had consistently been unfaithful in her relationships. But as some of you may know, when it is the person who you feel is the one, what has happened before no longer matters and the pain of your partner being unfaithful is almost impossible to bear. After their arguments and the 999 call, Jane left the flat but returned in the early hours of the morning when she brutally murdered Tommy Cressman as he slept in their bed. Is there a more cowardly way, I wonder? As she saw her lover lying in bed, asleep, she couldn't control the range and she struck Tommy over the head with a cricket bat, incapacitating him. She then stabbed him with a large, sharp kitchen knife that she'd armed herself with. Finally, she washed the bloodstains away before fleeing the scene, telling nobody of what she had done. Tommy's lifeless body was found the next day by an employee who went to the flat after a call from his worried mum in France who couldn't make contact with him. The employee called the police who, when they arrived, noted that the body was in the bedroom with an injury to his forehead caused by the cricket bat that went right down to the skull and the cause of death was the single fatal stab wound to his chest. Prime suspect was 34-year-old Jane Andrews and her face was plastered across the news headlines. But she went missing for three days. In that time, she wasn't completely off the radar. She contacted her ex-husband, Christopher Dunn Butler, shortly after killing Tommy, firstly saying she was being attacked, and then later saying it was okay. She then sent out text messages to friends, inquiring about her lover's whereabouts and well-being. She claimed to have had no involvement at all in Tommy's death, and stated that he was being blackmailed. After having been untraceable for days, police finally located Jane Andrews in Cornwall, where she was found overdosed in her car, having taken a large number of Nurofen tablets. Once more, she survived her suicide attempt. When first questioned by police after hospital treatment for the overdose, she continued with the lies that she had told her friends during her days on the run expressing ignorance at Tommy being attacked, let alone killed. And when formally interviewed by police, the story was different again. She lied to the investigators to try to diminish her role in the attack. She said she'd been abused by him over the years, not just mentally by his infidelity, but also physically, providing an example of an incident two years previously, when while dancing she'd fallen over and broken her arm. She claimed that Tommy had pushed her, and this was just another incident in a catalogue of offences during the course of their relationship. On the night in question, she claimed that Tommy had raped her, and she was merely just offending herself when Tommy died. It was accidental. To make her point further, Andrew sent some copies of the emails that Tommy had sent to other women, to her boyfriend's mum and dad. The former Roy Lade wrote on them, a little of what I had to contend with. Investigators didn't buy this line of defence at all. In all their inquiries, 
there was no evidence that Tommy Cressman had ever shown any signs of violence. They believed the motivation was much more simple. Jane Andrews was a woman scorned, and when she didn't get what she wanted, she became more and more angry and frustrated, and this all boiled over in her murderous attack on her partner. This was reinforced by a last letter written by Tommy to Andrews, which was found screwed up in the bin his home. It said, I do care about you. Yes, times have been difficult for us over the last year, but I do like you and being with you. However, over the last two months, I've been walking on eggshells all the time. Your mood swings have been so hard to predict. He said he'd done things to try and help, but nothing had been good enough. He added, your jealousy has also got out of hand. You question me every day and won't let me do anything without you. It has just got too much. I realise the hard times you've had and I just wanted to make things better. The trial of Jane Andrews took place at London's Old Bailey where she denied murder. Andrews, dressed all in black, showed no emotion in the dock as the last days of the couple's turbulent relationship were described. Her defence brought up her childhood abuse and stuck to the defence of a woman in an abusive relationship who was purely defending herself. But the prosecution in the form of Holder QC tore this argument apart. He told the jury of ten women and two men that the killing was not a crime simply born of the passion of the moment. He continued, Of course it was done in passion. Of course it was done in anger. But it wasn't a sudden attack either. There was plenty of time for reason to enter the situation. What emerges from all of this is it was quite clear that she was very keen to marry him and was possessive towards him. When things had gone wrong, her reaction had been extreme. On occasion, she resorted to threatening suicide in order to gain the attention from him that she quite clearly required. She felt he had built her up and let her down. He said that several friends spoke of Andrews's insecurity and fears about their relationship. When the jury came back, they told the court that they didn't believe Jane Andrews and she was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Jailing her, the judge told her that she had killed an unarmed man and left him to die without remorse. In killing the man you loved, you ended his life and ruined your own. It is evident that you made your attack on him when you were consumed of anger and bitterness. Nothing could justify what you did. Outside court, Tommy Cressman's dad, Harry, said that his son was a very, very kind gentleman. They said he was a decent man, a caring and devoted son, brother, uncle, cousin, godfather and friend, claiming that Andrew saw him as a meal ticket back to the high life she'd enjoyed in royal circles. And friends were appalled by how Andrews and her legal team had portrayed Tommy in court. One ex-girlfriend said, It was shocking for me to hear what she was accusing him of. It was also wrong and unfair. It was like she was killing him all over again. In November 2009, eight years into her jail term, Andrews absconded from open jail after another man she'd become obsessed with failed to visit her. She was caught three days later. A bit of a pattern. Two years later, this man described just how intense Andrews had been and how this led him to end the relationship. When he did so, she bombarded him with a series of bizarre phone calls. 
when he then heard how she'd escaped the slammer. He told the Daily Mail newspaper just how concerned he was for his own safety, to the extent that his own home was fitted with panic alarms until she was caught. He later told that while in prison she'd called him husband and showered him with gifts and love letters. With the Daily Mail's obsession with house prizes, they couldn't help but tell their readers how Andrews had bought a four-bedroom character cottage in the north for more than £200,000. And this cash purchase was made possible by the substantial profit she made while in prison on the sale of her old flat in the exclusive block overlooking Battersea Park, South London. She bought it for £100,000 in 1996 and sold it while in prison for £450,000. In 2013, the parole board decided that it would be safe to release Andrews, and two years later she was once again a free woman, still aged under 50, with lots of life to live. When the decision to release her was announced, former Detective Superintendent Jim Dickey said, I think Andrews is going to be a threat to any man she befriends, and who rejects the idea of having a relationship with her. On her release, in true Daily Mail style, they asked her for her thoughts on the past. Andrews declined to publicly apologise to the family of Tommy Cressman, and when asked whether she had a message for his relatives, she said, no comment. The last I heard about Jane Andrews was an article in The Sun saying she was on a website for dating millionaires, registered as Lady Jane 1967. Still chasing the Sloan lifestyle, I guess. So what do you make of what we've heard today? As always, our thoughts go out to Tommy Cressman, who did nothing wrong except meet the wrong person. Do you have any sympathy at all for Jane Andrews? I'm struggling to have any at all. I wonder what she's doing now, and if she's actually in another relationship. If so, I wonder if the person knows about her past, or whether she has taken the decision to erase her past. From the moniker on the dating site, Lady Jane, I take it not. She still has a lot of life to potentially lead, so it'll be interesting to see if she makes the headlines again anytime soon. And sadly, I have a feeling that she just might. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Come and join the conversation about this case and all aspects of UK True Crime at our Facebook group. Or if you'd like to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where for a small donation you can listen to 16 bonus episodes and other exclusive content from your favourite true crime podcast. Well, in the top 74 anyway. That's patreon.com slash UK True Crime. So that's all from me for now. So until we speak again next week, take it easy, be kind to everyone. Yeah, even that person. And most of all, stay classy. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.